We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. And in this section, we get two parables, both involving prayer. But each has its own distinct focus. In fact, in both cases, Luke specifies the focus or the subject. So we really have a pretty good idea on the main point of each parable. The first parable told in verses 1 through 8, Luke specifies that the subject is praying and not losing heart. But in view of the preceding context and in view of the specific picture or subject of this prayer in verses 1 through 8, the focus of the prayer seems to be really on uh, pleading for justice, pleading to make things right, pleading for God to come and act on behalf of his people. It's the very kind of prayer we actually see the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 praying. They're praying there in Revelation 6, 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a cry for justice. And that's the focus in the first parable here. It's really a cry for justice. And so the first parable is an ancient law court scene, which in the Middle East weren't like quiet, subdued, you know, clean-cut courtrooms as maybe we're used to seeing in a TV scene in the modern world today. Uh, in the Middle East, ancient law court scenes were very public, very crowded, and very loud. So we need to picture a very public setting with a crowd of people and with the din of public life all around it. And then in the midst of that, there's a woman. In fact, she's a widow, and she just won't give up crying out for justice. Luke opens the parable by framing it for us so we know the point as we enter into the parable. Here's how Luke begins. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now, he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. So that's the setup. It really tells us the specific focus so we know how to interpret the parable. Luke does this a handful of times with parables in his gospel where he kind of gives us a frame so that we have a kind of a, an angle to read the parable well. And here specifically, the angle is that people ought to pray at all times and not become discouraged. And then Jesus goes on and tells the parable. Here it is, verse 2, saying, here's Jesus' parable, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. This is the very opposite of a good and righteous judge. In Israel, judges were supposed to represent God and his righteousness and in that way administer justice. They weren't supposed to take bribes. They weren't supposed to show partiality. They were supposed to offer righteous judgment. In fact, when in the Old Testament, King Jehoshaphat appointed judges, here's what he said to them. Here's, here was his commission to the judges. Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Well, that's what a judge is supposed to be like. But the judge in Jesus' story, he's the exact opposite of that. He doesn't fear God, so you can't appeal to righteousness. You can't appeal to God and hope to persuade him. At the same time, he doesn't respect people. Um, this could mean that he has no sense of shame, right? Like you can't appeal to his honor. It could mean that. 
But in Luke chapter 20, verse 13, the same word is used, and it is more used in the sense of regard for or respect for others. And that seems to be the idea here. This guy really could care less about anybody. So he doesn't fear God. He care. He doesn't care about anybody or anyone's opinion or anything like that. Uh, this judge is just somebody who really is not, you can't trust for anything. He doesn't care about God, his law, doesn't respect people. He's callous and he's unrighteous. But, verse 3, there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my opponent. Opponent. So she's a widow, and widows were consistently seen in the Hebrew scriptures as among the most vulnerable. They had no income, they had no one to protect them, and so they're they're a picture of deep vulnerability. And the Old Testament routinely says God will hear the pleas of widows and orphans. Well, here's this widow then, this one who um, is vulnerable, and yet God listens to her, and she's coming to this unrighteous judge, and she's pleading for justice against her opponent. We don't know the nature of the problem. It's really not relevant to Jesus' point. Just that she needs the judge to rule in her favor, and so she just keeps coming. Day after day, each day, she just keeps coming, and she just won't give up. How will the judge respond? Well, verses 4 and 5. For a while, he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect any person, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her just justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she's going to wear me out. So this judge finally relents. And he relents not because he cares about people, not because he cares about God. He relents because this, this widow just won't quit. She just won't give up. The word translated wear out has actually generated quite a bit of comment because that word literally sometimes was used as a boxing term for beating someone up or giving someone a black eye. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 9.27. But it's highly unlikely this judge was worried that this old widow woman was going to beat him up. The word was also used more metaphorically just to beat down or to wear down. And that seems to be the situation here. This woman comes every day for hours, shouts her her claim, interrupts. She won't take no for an answer. And finally, this calloused, unrighteous judge, he just gives in. And then Jesus makes the point. He argues really from lesser to greater. If there's an unrighteous judge who won't give up, what about a righteous judge, namely God himself? And so verses 6 and 7, the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So the point is, if an unrighteous judge will give a widow the justice she needs because she won't give up, How much more will God give justice? That's the point. This is all about justice, and it's about God giving justice, notice, for his elect. That is, for his chosen people. Now, to be very clear, this doesn't mean if people badger God long enough and just keep pestering him, pestering him, pestering him in prayer, they're going to get whatever they want. That's not the point. Notice what's being asked for by the widow, and what Jesus says is given in the point is justice. This is all about justice. And so this really limits the application. God freely and gladly gives justice. 
God freely and gladly will vindicate his people. He's going to sort things out and he's going to set things right. And so this is about crying out for justice and God to make things right. And God will do that. Now, the last line is a a little bit challenging. Notice it says, will he delay long for them? The Greek word translated delay long is actually the usual word just for patience in the New Testament. It's makrothemia, um, and it's the idea of being patient over them. And so the word usually means patient, but it can take on the sense of delay when patiently waiting. So what's the sense here? In other words, is God being patient with people as they cry out day and night, or is God patiently waiting to bring justice? Is God delaying to bring justice? What, what, what's going on here? Well, both are true biblically. I tend to think we should just translate it as straightforward. Will, will God not bring justice and have patience with them? I think that's actually the point. Like, if we cry out to God for justice, God will bring justice, and God will be patient with us as we cry out for it, right? And we actually see that in that case of that picture of the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6. They're crying out, God brings justice, and he'll bring it in his time. And God will be patient with us as we cry out for that. I think that's the idea here. And Jesus actually answers his own rhetorical question in verse 8. He says, I tell you that he, God, will bring justice for them quickly. So the first lesson from this parable is that, uh, really from the perspective of the judge, the, the judge wasn't righteous, and yet he acted to help. Well, God is righteous, so won't he bring justice? Indeed, Jesus says, he will. He will bring justice for them. There's also kind of a second lesson from the, in the parable, and that's the lesson from the perspective of the widow. She persisted and kept asking, and so Jesus asks his disciples here in verse 8, the second half, he asks the question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth, or literally the faith on the earth. Will disciples have the same kind of faith as the widow? Will they keep seeking? Will they keep asking? Will they keep trusting God to act even when it's not clear what God is up to and you're wondering when God is going to make things right? And so from the perspective of the judge, God is righteous and he'll bring justice. From the perspective of the widow, disciples need to be like her and they need to keep asking, keep asking and trust God to bring justice in the right time and in the right way. All right, so that's the first parable Jesus tells here at the beginning of Luke 18. Up next is parable number two. And parable number two involves prayer as well. But Luke tells us the specific focus here is humility and self-exaltation. Verse 9 frames that specific focus for us. And then verse 14 wraps it up with the big principle. So you you kind of get bookends to the second parable here. Verse 9 says this. Now he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Notice that the intended audience of this parable is some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so these people are confident in their own righteousness. And in Jesus' context, those would be like the religiously observant people. But it really could be anyone who, in whatever context, believes that God is on their side, that they are righteous, that God therefore listens to them, and God is pleased with them. And so whatever the context we find ourselves in, if there's somebody who just believes they are in the right, God is on their side, and God always listens to them, that's who Jesus is talking to here. People like that who are confident and trust in their own righteousness. Well, Jesus is going to tell a parable that's really shocking and surprising, that completely 
turns things upside down. In their world, when Jesus told this parable, this was a shocking parable that turned everything upside down. Here's the parable. Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. No more opposite characters could exist in the Jewish mind. You have the upstanding, law-abiding, God-honoring Pharisee, the one who is clearly righteous and is doing his best to be holy, who's at the synagogue service every week, and he honors God in his daily life, right? Like, that's the Pharisee. He's an upstanding, decent, law-abiding, God-honoring person. And then you have the sinner par excellence, the tax collector. Like, no more opposite characters could exist in the Jewish mind than these two. So you have the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisees were well known for their uh, rigorous piety, and even sometimes in their own day and age, pictured as a little bit over the top in rabbinic literature, right? In other words, they're the poster child for the religiously observant who are confident they are right with God. Notice that both the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple in Jerusalem to pray, presumably at one of the appointed hours of prayer, 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. So, these were the daily public prayer services that involved sacrifice, worship, incense, offering, and prayers. And both the Pharisee and the tax collector are there for this moment. That's the setting for this parable. Prayers in this setting were typically murmured somewhat audibly. And so the parable describes what each men pray. The first, the Pharisee, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and began praying in this regard to himself. God I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. So he's standing at the hour of prayer in the temple praying, and standing was the common posture for prayer, especially in public prayer. So he prays, and he prays to himself or regarding himself. Uh, Jesus offers what seems to be a caricature that strikes pretty close to home. And I imagine a lot of the other people who were gathered around as Jesus told this parable kind of got a bit of a chuckle out of it because they could kind of picture uh, a certain Pharisee here or a certain Pharisee there actually praying like this with this sort of uh, self-exaltation, this self-regard. And when the Pharisee in the parable prays, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, the other people he's referring to are just the common folks, the people of the land the sinners, and those who didn't keep the law to the degree that the Pharisees believed they should. And, and so I'm not like them. I'm not uh, some of the big sinners. And he lists off what would have been some big sins from their day and age. And he even lists off some big virtues, like he fasts twice a week and he pays tithes of all he gets. So he's not like a big sinner. He actually practices some of the big virtues. He's certainly not like this tax collector over here who came into the temple to pray as well. But the tax collector himself, well, in the parable, he prays quite differently. Here's how he prays, verse 13. Now the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector belongs to the category of notorious sinners. He's off by himself. Notice he's standing some distance away. And he won't even lift up his eyes towards heaven because of his sense of unworthiness. And he's beating his chest. All of this is a demonstration of his, his sense of unworthiness before God. And he's praying a very 
short and sweet and to the point prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The, the phrase, be merciful, is actually more accurately translated, make atonement for me. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 3 to describe Jesus' death as a propitiation. So here, at the hour of prayer and sacrifice, this man is begging God to atone for his sins. And notice he, he calls himself the sinner, not just a sinner, but the sinner. He accepts this verdict about himself. He knows he's done wrong. He knows that his only hope is in the gracious atonement of God himself. And then Jesus gives a surprising conclusion. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, this man, that is the sinner, the tax collector, this man went home to his house justified rather than the other one. Uh, justify, that is, sins atone for and in a right relationship with God. God had ruled in his favor and given him a favorable verdict. That's the idea of justified. And he went home in that right relationship with God. Why? Well, here's the reason. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the the other frame to this parable, right? Jesus told this parable to some who were trusted in their own righteousness and confident in their own righteousness. And here we get the other frame at the end for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God responds to humility. God, as the apostles say, particularly Peter and James in both their letters, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's just the way it is with God. He, he gives grace to the humble, not to those who exalt themselves. And so, in summary, both parables have a person who's lowly, right? You have a widow, a lowly, vulnerable, helpless widow. And you have uh, a tax collector. And both of those lowly people come in, really are contrasted with a person of power in some regard, a judge and a Pharisee. One of the lowly persons is really known to be valued by God, at least in view of the Hebrew scriptures, the widow, right? God values and hears and listens to the pleas of the orphans and widow. The other uh, lowly person, the tax collector, well, he's believed to be far from God, about as far as you can get. And in these two parables, we get a surprising blend of two qualities. We get kind of brashness and boldness that acts confidently and doesn't give up. That's the widow, right? And this widow is seeking justice. And so brash, bold confidence to ask God, make things right, O God. That's one quality. The other quality is humility. Humility that recognizes unworthiness and pleads for grace and atonement. Well, God will justify this one. God will bring justice, justification, and make his relationship with this one right. And so when you tie both these parables together, it reminds us that we really need these two qualities. We need to humble ourselves before God, and at the same time, to pray with boldness, knowing that in due time, God will exalt us. He'll set things right, and he will exalt his people, his elect ones, that God does exalt the humble. And so we come before God with this sense of unworthiness and this humility born of that unworthiness, and yet with the confidence that he responds to humility and he's gracious. He has justified us, and we set our case before him, and we plead for God to make things right and to vindicate us as his people.